All right, good evening. It's good to see everybody tonight. Glad to have the opportunity to be with you in the middle of the week to come together and study. Um, if you would go ahead and take your Bibles out and open up to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. I'll offer a word of prayer for us in just a minute, but uh, we've got several individuals that we want to remember. Uh, definitely want to remember uh, Pa, Mitch, and Alicia's uh, grandfather. Uh, it sounds like he had, he had a procedure this afternoon evening. Uh, that went well, and uh, they're hoping that it will continue to see some improvement from him and that in the coming days he can come off the ventilator. Uh, so we're, we're glad to hear about that. We also want to remember Brenda Van Winkle. I know there's an email that went out today about her. Um, and also for the men of the congregation, there was this note up here uh, that we need to remember the men's Bible study that's going to be tomorrow night. And this is uh, via Zoom. So if you do not have the Zoom link, there was an email that went out about that, but if you don't have that Zoom link, um, it says here to contact Leland or Jason Delk. So send Leland or Jason Delk a message, and we can make sure to get that to you. Uh, let's go ahead and bow in prayer before we start our study. Dear Heavenly Father, you are great, you are awesome, and you are mighty. And we thank you for the opportunity that we have tonight to come together and to study from your inspired scriptures. We're so thankful, Father, that you left a record of yourself and of your people that we could learn from, that we could learn about your mighty works, we could learn about the promises that you made to your people and the steadfast way in which you fulfilled those promises. We thank you for the example of your people that you left for us, that we could see their good, their bad, and everything in between. And Father, we pray that we would learn from it, that we would take advantage of these opportunities to study and to become better Christians, better servants of yours. Father, as we have mentioned tonight, there are those in our heart that are struggling with illnesses. There are those that are recovering from surgeries and procedures. Father, we think about Tina Job and we think about Bruce Higdon. Think about uh, Pa Hockett. Father, we pray for Brenda Van Winkle. We pray for all of those right now, Father, that are dealing with the effects of the coronavirus. And Father, we know that all these individuals that are struggling with health, that you hold them in your hand, that it is easily within your power to heal them, and we know, Father, that if it's your will, that you will do so. We pray that you would use us to lift up and encourage these individuals, and Father, we pray for opportunities to do so. Father, we pray for those that are not here tonight that are struggling with their faith. We ask that you would use us to reach out to them and to encourage them too. Father, be with us tonight that everything we do would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, again, if you haven't already, please open up to Genesis chapter 10. Uh, we've got another tall task tonight. I believe last week uh, covered chapters 4 through 9, and tonight we're going to try to cover chapters 10 through 14. So we're covering uh, large swaths of history, lots of things that are happening. So I'm going to try to move at a pretty quick pace, but I don't want to omit any of your comments. So we do have microphones. So if you have a comment or you have a question, Please uh, stop me, put a hand up, and uh, we definitely want to get those because I think we're all going to benefit from participation. Uh, I'll go ahead and apologize in advance to those that are in the vehicle. I've got a couple of maps and diagrams that I'll be referencing, and I know you're not going to be able to see those, so I'll do my best uh, to describe them as we go. But if you recall, uh, a couple of things should be readily apparent to us already as we've gone throughout Genesis. And I just want to mention two of them as I was kind of reflecting on tonight's lesson. The first one is that God has expectations for his people. 
So even before we have a whole list of formal commandments, we know that God has expectations for his people. We have seen that in the very beginning, God had expectations for Adam and Eve. He, in fact, gave them a commandment. They did not fulfill that commandment, and they did not live up to his expectations, and they were punished. God had expectations for Cain and Abel. Cain did not live up to those expectations. God had expectations for the people as a whole, and they did not live up to those expectations, and they were punished with the flood. But there are also individuals that have. We think about Noah is held up as this wonderful example that you studied last week as an individual that, despite all those around him that were living a certain way, he did make the choice. And we're going to see that as we go throughout our lesson tonight, too, that there are individuals that are going to recognize that God has expectations for them and they need to live their life a certain way, especially as we start to talk about Abram. I think it's interesting that we see these individuals that choose to worship the Lord. That's the other thing I want to bring out. God has expectations for his people. There's a certain way to act, and he expects that his people are to worship him. We're going to notice that as we study a little bit about Abram. Uh, I want to introduce uh, chapter 10 by actually looking at chapter 9 and in verse 19. Chapter 9 and in verse 19, in reference to Shem, Ham, and Japheth, says, These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the whole earth was populated. If I had to sum up chapter 10, I would actually just use that verse right there. That's really what it's talking about. Uh, Sometimes this is referred to as the beginning of nations or the origin of nations or the table of nations. But this is talking about Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and really the individuals that are going to come from that lineage. Uh, I found this list And as with any list that's put together by individuals, there there are obviously going to be some debate over them. But I think it is helpful for us to kind of put in context who is going to be coming from these three children. Uh, So we'll start with Japheth. And I'm going to put a map up after this. But from Japheth is going to come the Greeks, the Italians, the Spanish, the Medes, the Persians, the Parthians. So if you think about it, these are going to be individuals that are going to be spreading out to the north. Ham. So from Ham, we're going to see individuals along the coast. Uh, So Ethiopians, Egyptians, Libyans, the Canaanites. So anytime you see the ites, you know, the the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the -the fill-in-the-blank-ites, those are all descending descending here from the family of Ham. Philistines, and then even the early Babylonians. Um, And that's one that there's there's a little bit of uh, dispute over, but we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later. And then Shem, of course, is of the lineage of the Israelites. So the Israelites, the Assyrians, the Elamites, the Chaldeans, Edom, Moab, Ammon, Syrians, Arameans, and the Arabians. So when we're reading throughout the rest of history and we're talking about all these different nations, they can all trace back to this area right here. And that's really what chapter 10 is talking about. Uh, I want to put up this map. And and again, I'll, I'll apologize. I don't know how well you can see it or you can see the colors but if you think about where we left off in, in chapter 9, we have, uh, we have the ark settling on Mount Ararat. We have Noah and his family disembarking, and Noah begins to be the farmer. So if you think about Mount Ararat, Mount Ararat is going to be up there in, in the north, kind of up there supposedly by the Caspian Sea. And this kind of shows where over time these, these individuals, the nations that come from their seed, are going to spread. So as I mentioned, Japheth... Japheth is there in the red, and that's really that top, that northern area. So what's going to be the Greeks? What's going to be the Italians? What's eventually going to be the Romans? Uh, Those individuals up there. Shem is right there in the middle. 
Um, and so we have those individuals, again, the Israelites, Moab, Edom, Ammon, those nations. And then Ham is going to be the Canaanites. So again, right there along the coast, the Canaanites and the Philistines. But then also moving down into northern Africa. So uh, the Egyptians and the Ethiopians. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of an idea. And of course, that's, that's not exact. But that's a little bit about where these individuals are going to move and to settle over time. So actually, we actually go into the text. Uh, you'll, you'll notice that the first individual that's covered there in Genesis chapter 10, verses 2 through verse 5, are the sons of Japheth. There's not a lot that's mentioned about Japheth, at least in relation to the other individuals. And perhaps this is just because for a great part of the early history of the Israelites, and that's what the Bible is. The Bible is, for the most part, recording the history of God's people. For the greater part of the early history of God's people, there's not a lot of dealings with the descendants of Japheth. Again, if Japheth is going to be the Greeks and the Romans and the Italians, it's not that they have no history, but it's just simply not germane at this point in time to the descendants of Shem, as we're going to come to find out. But as you go down a little bit more and you come to verses 6 through 20, there's quite a bit that is said about the descendants of Ham. Now, what was mentioned specifically about the descendants of Ham in chapter 9? You've got to think back two weeks. But what happened at the very end of chapter 9, specifically in reference to Ham? Cursed. That's right. He was cursed. If you recall, there's that situation where uh, Noah drinks of his vineyard. He becomes drunk and he uncovers himself. Ham sees this, and rather than doing something about it, he goes and he tells his brethren. His brethren, uh, as, as it's mentioned here, Shem and Japheth, they do the honorable thing. They go in and they cover their father. And when Noah finds out about it, he doesn't curse Ham himself, interestingly enough, but he curses the descendants of Ham. He curses Canaan. And he says that they are going to serve the descendants of Shem, which is very interesting as we see how these things are going to play out. And you see these, these rivalries, these, uh, these strife that is going to come about in years later, all predicted years and years and years before. But uh, a lot of time is spent here on Ham. And I think the, the idea is, or at least the extrapolation on my part, is that they are much more closely involved with the people of God. Uh, you think about the Egyptians and the relationship that the Egyptians are going to have with, uh, with Abram and Isaac. And you think about all those nations in, in, in Canaan and how they are going to have continual interaction, not just as, as the people go in and conquer the land, but even far after they conquer the land. You're always hearing about interactions with Moabites, interactions with Edomites, wars with the Philistines. And so it is helpful to us to know where did all these people come from? You know, these nations that are just mentioned in Chronicles and Kings and in Joshua and the Judges, where did all these people come from? Well, well, here's our answer. Now, of course, there's a lot that's left out, and we don't know everything, and certainly we don't need to know everything. But this gives us the starting place for all these nations that we're going to be reading about throughout the early history of Israel. I don't want to spend just a ton of time on all these individuals, but I do want to mention one because one is given a couple of verses of attention in chapter 10. Uh, we are in the context here of talking about the descendants of Ham. And look with me in verse 8. It says, Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. 
From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kalna, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the principal city. So several verses here dedicated to this individual named Nimrod. Uh, if you want to do some reading and you want to get stuck in a lot of different rabbit holes, go start reading about Nimrod. I <laughs> spent way too much time. Uh, and, and, and of course, again, all of these things are extra biblical sources, so you, you take them at face value. But Nimrod is mentioned quite frequently throughout uh, uh, other historical writings. Uh, Lots of other nations have accounts of Nimrod or an individual very, very similar to Nimrod. Um, And you will find literally anything and everything written about him. Uh, And it's hard to tell, of course, what's true or what's not. But sticking to the biblical context, I think we can draw a couple of pretty interesting uh, facts from this. Uh, First of all, he was a mighty individual. If you look at the way the wording is is actually recorded there in the Hebrew, it can be interpreted a couple of different ways. Uh, As as the New King James Version interprets it, uh, a mighty hunter before the Lord. But if you go back and look at some of those Hebrew words, it could also be translated a mighty one against the Lord. And a lot of individuals have really tried to latch on to this. And especially when you take into account the number of cities that he founded. And it, it appears that in some ways Nimrod may have risen up, you know, these, these little kingdoms for himself. It appears that he was the first one to build all these different cities and then try to rule over them. He was this mighty individual, this mighty hunter. So he was a man that was of mighty stature. It appears that he founded, and we're not talking about nothing cities. I mean, you look at some of these cities. So Babel, who we're going to talk about in a little bit. But also, if you think about Akkad, which was the primary city in the Akkadian Empire, and then he goes on, uh, presumably after Babel and the languages have been confounded, to, uh, to Assyria to build Nineveh, which was also the, the capital of the Assyrian Empire for years and years and years. So this is a very important individual in history. Um, but there's, there's a lot there that seems to be playing uh, on that idea of him being against the Lord. And I think especially when you tie in that connection to Babel. Um, again, there, there's so much more that I, I wish we knew about the Tower of Babel. We're only given these few verses in chapter 11. But it does seem like in a, in a lot of this extra biblical writing, so again, uh, t- take that for what it's worth there, that Nimrod may have been the principal organizer of this building of the Tower of Babel. He is the one that founded the city. He was the one that supposedly was over these cities. They were his own little mini kingdom. And when you look at that wording there of him being someone who is mighty against the Lord, that does kind of fit in with the idea behind building of the Tower of Babel, something that was done in opposition to God. And if you think about that, it is, it's to me, it's sad in a way, but not unpredictable. That so soon after the flood, you would have individuals that are already setting themselves against the Lord again. God, before the flood, looked down at his creation that had already turned away from him. Whatever expectations he had for their conduct and behavior, they had failed at. And it was such an utter failure that the the earth needed to be purged. And so soon after the flood, what should have been a monumental lesson. You know, if you're Ham, Sham, and Japheth... You know, you've got to be teaching your descendants, listen, guys, you know, there is a huge price to pay for not following God faithfully. But yet just a couple of generations removed and and not a very long time at all, perhaps just a hundred years or so from the flood, 
you already have individuals that may at least have been setting themselves against the Lord and rising up and trying to rule over their brethren and potentially also influencing those of their brethren to do something that is in opposition to the Lord. We'll talk about that just a little bit more when we get to chapter 11. But I I did want to bring that out because, uh, again, not an insignificant person. These cities, uh, Acadia, Babel, uh, which some individuals have said goes on to be Babylon. There's definitely some, uh, some discussion about that. But major, major cities that this individual founded uh, that are going to play a role throughout history for for thousands of years. The only other individual that I wanted to mention uh, in this, as you go through uh, 21 through 32, well, I'll I'll take just a break there. 21 through 32 talks about Shem, Shem being the father of the Israelites. Um, This is is interesting to me, may not be to you, but I didn't didn't know this before, but the word uh, Semitic, a lot of times we hear it in the context of somebody being anti-Semitic, um, a Semite, someone who is of Jewish origin, comes from Shem. Uh, so uh, if, you, if you hear that word, someone who's a Semite or Semitic or someone who's anti-Semitic, now you know its origin. I didn't know that. Um, but I do think there is some, a couple of interesting things that are mentioned in this block, this 21 through 32 block. Um, when you go down to verse 21, in talking about Shem, it mentions that he was the father of all the children of Eber. That, that jumped out at me. Just because it doesn't mention him as being the father of his own children. He had, he had his own children. In verse, uh, let's see, in verse 22, the sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arphaxed, Lud, Aram. So he has his own sons. But when he's introduced in chapter 21, he is mentioned as the father of all the children of Eber. If you go down to uh, verse 24 and verse 25, Eber doesn't come for another couple of generations. Um, and, and I put it up here so you can already see it. But I think that's because Eber is where we get the word Hebrew. So Eber, or an Eberite, is where we see first introduced in Genesis chapter 14, Abram the Hebrew. So it appears that Eber, a couple descendants down, is going to be the one that these individuals call themselves after. Uh, so Abram was an Eberite. He was a Hebrew. And so in Genesis chapter 14, when they go to get Abram the Hebrew... Uh, and, of course, the Hebrews are, are going to be the name for the children of Israel for, for generations. So that's potentially why, uh, just a suggestion on my part, as to why it would mention this individual Shem as the father, uh, there in verse 21, the father of all the children of Eber. And so even at this early stage, there's a recognition that Eber played some prominent role so that his descendants would be known as Eberites. Uh, and, of course, also, you know, we have, we have them listed according to Shem. Um, but I just, thought, I just thought that was interesting. One other person I wanted to bring out in verse 25 that has kind of an interesting fact about them is Peleg. Uh, it mentions in verse 25 that the sons of Eber, the name of one was Peleg, which means division. For in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. So uh, that's, that's a little bit interesting. There's two things there. You know, was, was the earth divided itself, or were, were the people divided? Or both? I, I don't know. Um, if, if you, if you probably taught this in your middle school science about, you know, the possibility of Pangea where there was just one big continent and then the continents kind of all separated and drifted apart. So was that what happened? Was it in the days of Peleg that the tectonic plates shifted and God caused the continents to drift apart? Was that part of the dispersal of people? There was one great continent. All the people were then separated out and the continents drifted apart. 
I don't know. Or, or is this just referring to that time when God confused the languages of the people? Uh, the, the math works out that Peleg would have been around during the Tower of Babel. Is it just saying that that was during the time when the earth was divided by means of the peoples being scattered to all these different areas? I don't know, but it's just interesting that that's the, that's the fact that's mentioned there with Peleg. Any, any questions or comments on chapter 10 before we move on to Tower of Babel in chapter 11? Okay. Um, so let, let's talk a little bit about the Tower of Babel. Verses 1 through 4, it tells us that we are here in the land of Shinar. If we go back, back one more. All right, if you see that land of Shem right there, that is Mesopotamia. And that is, that is what's referred to as the land of Shinar. So we're, we're somewhere in that region. Uh, again, some individuals have connected Babel with Babylon. Uh, some individuals say that that's, that's not exactly where it is. Um, but the, the, actual, the actual location isn't altogether important. Um, but it was probably somewhere in that Mesopotamian region. So chapter 11, it mentions in verse 1, the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, let's build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So uh, it is, it's interesting here um, that they have this plan. And as I was thinking about it, you think, okay, why, why a tower? You know, why, why just make something tall to make a name for ourselves? Uh, one possibility is, is this some idea by man to avoid a further flood? You know, if God has the capability to flood the entire earth, I'll show him, I'll make a tower that is so tall that when he decides to punish me, I'll just escape to the top of the tower. Ridiculous to say out loud, but man is ridiculous. We often think that we can thwart God's plans. We see the majestic, unlimited power of God to flood the entire earth, and we think, you know what? Yeah, I'll just build a bigger tower. He won't be able to get me then. Uh, that's, just, that's just a thought that came through my mind. What we do know is that this was in some ways a showcase in an act of pride. Again, I wish I knew more about it. Um, I don't know, if, again, it was this Nimrod, this individual who may have been putting himself in opposition to the Lord that was then stirring up the people in his little kingdom to do so? Um, or, or were there some other motives behind this? But, but it seems whatever the motivations were, they were in opposition to God. This was not a project that God favored. It says in verse 4, their goal was to make a name for themselves. And I think we can all agree that whatever the smaller motivations or the smaller reasonings may be, even if you take out some of the just outright rebellious things, if we set out with the end goal of making a name for ourselves, we have completely set off on the wrong foot. Our goal as Christians should always be to glorify God. In anything that we do, in anything that we set out to do, it should not be about us. It should be to the glory of God. This was not a project that in any, in any way had an intention of glorifying God. And so I think from, if you strip all that other stuff out, that may be all we need to know. This was a project taken on by a large group of people that had no intention of using it to glorify God. It was only to glorify themselves. And so God comes down to see what they're doing. That's a, a somewhat humorous phrase to me, uh, to think about the idea that God, who is 
anywhere and everywhere at all times that created everything would need to go down to look at something. Uh, it, it's, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit hard for me to wrap my mind around. But whatever, whatever maybe, maybe that's just for us. Maybe it's just written that way. Um, but whatever the actual manifestation of that was, God took a closer look at what these individuals were doing and he didn't like it. Again, you go back to those points that we brought up. God has expectations for his creation and he expects certain conduct and he expects to be regarded in a certain way. And these people clearly were not doing that. And so what he decided to do was to scatter them and to confuse their language. That's where we get the name Babel. Babel is similar to the Hebrew word for, uh, for confusion. And do you think about, we well, still use that word today for a baby that's just babbling, just making noise that we don't understand. So he confuses their language and their spread um, all throughout the earth. The rest of the chapter then just focuses on Shem's descendants. Uh, so verse 10 down through uh, about verse 26. These are just the generations from Shem all the way to Abram. Abram, who is going to be now our principal character for the next couple of, next couple of chapters. Uh, verses 27 through 32 talk about the family of, of Abram. It mentions there that uh, in verse 27, this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. Haran died, so this is Lot's father. Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. And uh, go on to this next one. So you can see we're down there by the, by the Euphrates. That's the suggested location of Ur of the Chaldeans. This would probably be just a little bit south of that land of Shinar, just in the southern, southern tip of Mesopotamia, down there just kind of uh, northwest of the Persian Gulf. But that was where it suggested that Ur of the Chaldeans was. So this is where they were. And then it mentions that they're going to leave there and Terah, so this is Abraham's father, Abraham's father, Terah, and Abram and his wife, and Lot and his wife. Okay? So Lot's father has already passed. They're going to journey from Ur, and they're going to go to this place, Haran. Perhaps they named this after the son of Terah, the father of Lot, who had passed away. I don't know if it was already named that. That would seem to be a little bit of a coincidence. Um, but they journey to this place, Haran, and that's where they stay. And it mentions uh, there the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So we leave chapter 11 with Abram and his wife and Lot and his family. They've left their home in Ur, and they've journeyed northward along the Euphrates to this land of Haran. Uh, any, any thoughts or comments on, on chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, or anything so far? Okay, let, let's jump into chapter 12. Uh, we've got a lot to cover. And chapter 12 really introduces something that uh, I don't think we can understate the ramifications of the promises that are made here in chapter 12. Verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So these are the promises. These are the three great promises. These are the promises that the, that the kids are learning about back in the little classes right now. But these promises in many ways are going to provide the framework for the rest of the Bible. We have this promise that is made to Abram of this land that he is going to inherit. We are going to spend books and chapters and hundreds of years talking about the children of Israel 
going to this land, this promised land. They're going to go into Egypt and come out of captivity. And they're going to go, they're going to wander in the desert because they wouldn't go into the promised land. And then they are finally going to be led by Joshua in conquest to take the promised land. So we have that. We're going to have this great nation. This great nation that you could argue is going to start in Egyptian captivity and is going to grow and grow and grow to the period of the unified kingdom. This mighty nation. And then you've got this seed promise that there is going to be this one who is going to come through their lineage that is going to bless all in the world. So that takes us all the way through the Old Testament on into the New Testament with the coming of Christ. And so you really see the framework of almost the entire Bible laid out here in these three promises. Uh, I put on there, but I think it's pretty interesting that these promises form the foundation and the introduction for Stephen's gospel sermon all the way in Acts chapter 7. When he's talking to those individuals there, where does he start? He starts with the promises to Abram. And what, what, is, what is remarkable about Abram or what's notable about him is that when God makes these promises to him, there's nothing recorded of hesitation or doubt. He obeys. In fact, when we go to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8, uh, what's recorded here for us in Genesis, him following the Lord's instructions and leaving, that was what is recorded in Hebrews chapter 11 as a testament to Abram's faith. So we read in in verses 4 through 6, Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Abram took, in verse 5, Sarai his wife, Lot his brother's son, all their possessions they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. Verse 6, he passed through the land to the place of Shechem, and that's where he stayed. And there the Lord appears to him again. So verse 7, it says, the Lord appeared to Abram, and he said, to your descendants, I will give this land. So again, he reiterates that land promise. Now that Abram, if you recall in our little map here, he's up in Haran. He goes all the way down, following the coast through the land of Canaan. And now he's down in this area of Shechem. So he is now in the land of Canaan. He followed the Lord's commandments. He heard those promises. He believed in those promises. And he follows the Lord's instructions. Once he is now here in Shechem, God reiterates that promise. And he's going to tell it to him again. He said, this is the land I'm going to give you. And what's remarkable to me is Abram's response is to do what? Build an altar and worship. worship. Exactly right. God makes these promises to him. He believes the promises. He acts on the God's commandments. And he worships him. And this is not the last time that we're going to see Abram worship So juxtapose this with our conversation about the individuals in the Tower of Babel. You know, whatever their motivations were, they were doing something to make a name for themselves. Here we have Abram. God has made these great, wonderful promises to him, and Abram worships. Mentions there in verse 7 that he built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. He moves, and he goes from there to the mountain east of Bethel. And it says in verse 8, he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and continued on going south. Verses 10 through 20 now recount this time of a famine where he continues on down going further south to the land of Egypt. Um, And so if you think about that area, that land of Canaan, uh, very, very suspect or I guess very, um, you know, they, they could experience the famines there. But if you go further toward Egypt, you had that Nile Delta, that fertile area there that would probably do a little bit better against famine. So Abram goes to Egypt. But what's really important about this is that he is humbled by Pharaoh there. It it is fascinating to me that we are going to see this situation play out 
not once, but twice in Abram's life. And then it's actually going to play out again in Isaac's life, where they lie about the relationship to their spouse. But Abram has this plan where he is going to lie and say that Sarai is his sister and not his wife, because he is afraid that the people of the land are going to kill him to, in fact, take Sarai. So what's recorded there to us is that he is humbled by Pharaoh. When Pharaoh realizes that uh, Sarai is not his sister and is his wife, he, uh, he, he humbles Abram there in verses 18 and 19. And he says, why did you do this? Now, therefore, in verse 19, here's your wife. Take her and go your way. He commanded his men concerning him. They sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Pharaoh wanted no part of this. In a couple of chapters, uh, we're going to see the same thing happen. Uh, Genesis chapter 20 with Abimelech. And then, you know, just like history repeating itself, when you go to chapter 26, you're going to see the same thing with Isaac, also with an Abimelech. I think Abimelech was kind of like Pharaoh. It was a title. So you're going to see the situation play out time and time again. What this reminded me of was a point that Leland made two weeks ago when we were talking about Noah. And Noah, who was this individual who had great faith in God, but who, who had flaws, who made a mistake. And that's the wonderful thing about the Bible is that the Bible does not omit flaws even in great men of faith. Even in an individual like Abram, who is the, the patriarch and the father of, of the Hebrews, he made mistakes. And this seems to be a mistake. This seems to be a, a lack of faith in God. God has just promised you that he is going to make this great nation of you. He is going to give you this land to inherit. You shouldn't need to worry that somebody's going to kill you because of your wife. But uh, as individuals, we, we have our flaws. We have our weaknesses. And it's mentioned here not once but again twice that Abram had this weakness and this lapse in faith. Any, uh, any thoughts on, on chapter 12 before we go on into chapter 13? Okay, let's go to chapter 13. Now we're going to talk about inheriting the land. Chapter 13. Abram went up from Egypt. He's been essentially cast out, humbled by Pharaoh for lying to him. He and his wife and all that he had and lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. So uh, despite his, his error in the previous chapter, we see that he is still an individual that worships God. He still does not fail to worship God. So he essentially goes back to where he was in Bethel. But what we're going to find over the next couple of verses is that Abram and Lot have been extremely blessed. Uh, their, their flocks, their possessions, their families, their servants have grown and grown and grown to the point that where they are back in that area of Bethel cannot support the two of them. So you're probably familiar with this, but Abram, uh, Abram here uh, does the honorable thing and he offers to Lot. Uh, this is verse 8 and verse 9. Of chapter 13, he says, okay, what do you want? We've got this whole area here. There's no sense for the two of us, kinsmen, relatives, to fight over space. You pick, you pick a space and I'll just go the other way. He gives Lot that first choice. So it says there that Lot, in verse 11, uh, lifted his eyes, and I'm sorry, verse 10, and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go toward Zoar. And Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and he journeyed east. They separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. So, again, due to their blessings, the land could not support them both. And despite the reputation for their wickedness, Lot chooses to take this area that looked good to him, 
And I, I put a little bit of a map up here. Uh, we're not entirely sure where Sodom and Gomorrah were because they were utterly destroyed. Um, but the, it does mention that due to some uh, archaeological excavations, there are huge brimstone deposits in these areas all around Zoar. Um, so it's quite possible that Sodom and Gomorrah could have been in this area uh, right there. Um, so whatever the case would be, you can see up there in the top, that's this area of Mamre. That's where Abraham decided to reside. And Lot came closer and closer and closer all the way over here. And it mentions that he pitched his tents even unto Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, we're told in the New Testament, in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 8, that Lot tormented his righteous soul by being in such close proximity to sin. And I think it goes without saying that should be a lesson to us as well. That even if there's something that looks good, that looks valuable, that looks nice, if we are in the proximity of sin, it's not worth it. And Lot is going to pay the price for this, not, not, not once, but twice, as, as we'll come to read in the coming chapters. By being in this close proximity, he is going to put himself and his family in danger once, and then when God goes to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he is going to put his family in danger again, and he's going to lose part of his family. But beyond those actual losses, there was going to be the daily tormenting of being close to sin, being in the proximity of sin. And I think the idea that it should impress upon us is it's just not worth it. You know, there are some times that I think we try to rationalize or justify things in our mind and say, you know, it's, it's a... You know, I think I can handle it, or it's going to be worth it, whatever the case may be. Maybe it's, maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's an individual who is a sinful individual, and maybe they're, they're a close friend. Maybe they weren't always this way, but we try to keep that relationship up. And, you know, we say, oh, I just I want to keep these ties up. But we're going to come to realize that we just cannot stand to be in the proximity of sin. And if we're a true Christian, we shouldn't. It should torment us. If we are a righteous individual... We should not be okay to be around sin. It should torment and vex our righteous soul. I love the words that it uses. I think the King James uses that word vex. I mean, you get the idea that it was just painful to be around the wickedness and the sin that was in Sodom and Gomorrah. And you imagine that Lot came to just deeply regret his decision. But in the moment, he saw only the beauty of the land. Um, Abraham is the one, Abram there makes the, makes the good choice. He allowed Lot to go that way. Um, and it, it mentions there in, let's see, verse 14, that the Lord appears to Abram again. And he says, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. All the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as of the dust of the earth. So again, he reiterates both the land promise and the nation promise here to Abram. And Abram, as it mentions, in, in, as we already said in verse 18, he moved his tent and he dwells by the terebinth trees of Mamre. Uh, so a little bit northward of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, any, any comments on chapter 13 before we finish up with chapter 14? All right, let's, uh, let's finish up with chapter, chapter 14. This is going to be the rescue of Lot. I've got another map up here. Again, I don't know how well you can see uh, all of these. But this is just trying to put in context some of these two areas. That area of, of Mesopotamia. So Mesopotamia is going to be to the northeast up there. Uh, it says on the map there, Babylonians. And then you've got the land of Canaan. But the context of chapter 14 seems to be that you still had these kings in Mesopotamia. You had these kings in, in Babylon and in Shinar. And perhaps they are following in the legacy of Nimrod 
who uh, have these little kingdoms that they have built up. But in whatever case, they were exacting a toll or a tribute or they exercised some kind of influence over the Canaanite kings, the individuals that lived in the cities uh, around that area of Canaan and Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, it mentions here that those people, after a while, said, you know, we're done. Like, like often happens, uh, we're done paying you tribute. We're done being under your rule. And they rebelled. Uh, one, one kind of interesting note is uh, that this individual Amraphel, uh, this is in chapter 14, verse 1. It came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar. So again, Shinar is Mesopotamia, Babylon area. Uh, there's lots of writing that connects Amraphel as another name of Hammurabi. So if you remember, going all the way back to your world history, Hammurabi and Hammurabi's code. He was, uh, he was a primary king in that early, early Babylonian age. And so a lot of, uh, a lot of writing has connected Amraphel, king of Shinar, with Hammurabi, the king of Babylon, early Babylon. But these individuals, Amraphel and Sherlamar, all these individuals, uh, title, king of nations. It's a pretty cool title. Title, king of nations. Um, Nations is actually just this place called Goyim, which does not sound near as cool as king of nations. So I don't know if he just realized that king of nations sounded better than Goyim. But uh, it appears that Goyim was just kind of a place. It was like a little collection of, of cities. But King of Nations sounds way cooler, so maybe that's why, that's why title went with that. But anyway, these kings have decided to make war with these kings that have rebelled against them. And they come and they conquer them. As we read on, not only do they conquer them, but they conquer them. They take spoil from the cities. Two of those cities are Sodom and Gomorrah. They also take captives. And some of the captives that they take are Lot and his family. Well, an individual escapes and he tells Abram about it. And Abram rounds up all of his men. This gives us a pretty good idea of how powerful Abram was. Uh, But it mentions there in verse 14 of chapter 14, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house. He's got 318 servants. That's, That's pretty impressive. But he creates his own little army. So Abram's army. Um, and he goes and he fights these kings. So he's going to travel northward. So as these kings have come in, they've kind of plundered. They've taken captives. They've taken spoil. They're going to be working their way northward around the desert to go back to Mesopotamia. Abram and his forces chase them down. They defeat them, and they take everything back. It's mentioned to us here that, uh, that they were able to bring it all back in verse 16. He brought back all the goods And also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. We have next a very short, but a very consequential encounter uh, with Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is this individual who is the king of Salem. It also mentions that he is the priest of God Most High. And Melchizedek is going to be the one that we are going to read about in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 4. That Christ is this high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This individual who in many ways, is just introduced and thrust into this story. We have no context for him. We have not read about Salem up to this point, but we are told about this individual that, as it mentions in Hebrews, he has no lineage, he has no beginning, he has no end. All we're told about him is that he is king of Salem. And what does the word Salem mean? Peace. Peace, that's right. So he is the king of peace, so a natural connection there to Christ. He is the king of peace, and he is also a priest of God Most High, forming the perfect type of Christ, who was the king, he was the Messiah, he was the anointed one, 
He was the king of peace because his death on the cross was able to tear down that middle wall of separation and create peace that where there once was enmity between us and God. So he is the king of peace, and he is also that high priest, the one, the only one, who is qualified to go in and offer that sacrifice, that powerful sacrifice once and for all that was greater than any sacrifice of bulls and goats, that was able to go backwards and go forwards. And so we have this very, very consequential encounter here with Abram and Melchizedek. And what does Abram do when he encounters Melchizedek? What does he give him? A tithe. He gives him a tithe. Now that should be interesting to us because Abram is the one who is the conquering hero. Abram has gone out and gotten all of the spoil. He is the one who has chased down all these kings of Mesopotamia and gotten everything back. But yet he shows honor to this individual Melchizedek. And that's the point that is uh, made there by the author of Hebrews. That if even the patriarch Abram gave this individual a tie, that should show that this Melchizedek had a position that Abraham thought, Abram thought was worthy of honor. Uh, very interesting is that in verses 21 through 24, this kind of last little section here of 14, he comes to the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom says, listen, I just want my people back. You can keep all the stuff. And Abram doesn't keep the stuff. I don't need it. He says, listen, all I want is whatever my men have eaten so far. Um, and, and again, I think that just, shows to, that just goes to show that Abram was an honorable individual. He was doing this to rescue Lot. He was not doing this to enrich himself. Again, juxtaposed against some of these kings, juxtaposed against that Nimrod character who are looking to make a name for themselves, to build up kingdoms for themselves. Abram was content to rely on the promises of God. He didn't want to enrich himself or grow his own little personal kingdom through any kind of other gain. A lot of content. Uh, any, any final comments or anything before we close up tonight? All right. Well, I appreciate your time and I appreciate your, your patience as we covered a lot of material.